welcome again to the Southwest Climate Podcast. I guess this would be, Mike, the pandemic version, the first pandemic version. I remember, you know, about a month ago where we were uh, doing it in person and hoping that uh, it wouldn't come to a remote recording, but here we are. How you doing? I'm good. I quite honestly didn't see this coming, which I'm going to guess a lot of us didn't. Well, uh, how you making out? <clears throat> My beard is as uh, longest it's ever been. <laughs> yeah, that is. So it's seeing as yours is too, I think. Yeah, we are now like uh, in a contest, I guess. Uh, looks like you've got uh, a few weeks head start on me. Or maybe, I, I had a couple years head start on you, yeah. It's good to, to be here. And for, for, for our listeners, uh, if you're podcast fans, I'm sure you've been hearing a lot of podcasts recorded over Zoom, but that's how we're, we're, we're coming to you. So uh, if there's a little bit of a of an audio quality issue. Hopefully not though. We've got the, the best sound person in the game. Ben will, uh, will, will make us sound good and, and delete all the things that make us sound uh, not so good. <laughs> Maybe delete one of us totally. We'll see, <laughs> see how that turns out. Well, we'll do our best here uh, to bring uh, the Southwest climate to, to, to people. Um, the climate has continued. The climate has continued. So what I thought we would do, Mike, let me, let me throw something out, out at you. I, I thought, um, you know, we'd, we'd take a little bit advantage of for obvious reasons, the collective interest in, in, in the COVID-19 situation and talk a little bit about the connections or, or lack thereof with climate, because that's been in the news. Won't spend too much time on that. Uh, you know, we're not epidemiologists, so uh, we don't want to stray too far from our wheelhouse, but I think it would be instructive to just think about uh, and talk a little bit about, about that. And then, you know, we can go into sort of our our normal mode of, of operation and talk about what's been happening in last few months and, and, and a look forward. How does that sound to you? Yeah, it does sound good. I think you've been, you've been, uh, we've been having some exchanges on Slack and email, and I think you've really been paying close attention to some of the, the COVID climate, the breaking news, the breaking science on uh, what we're learning about that. You know, with, with respect to uh, the climate part of this, I think by analogy, people have been talking about, well, there may be a seasonal signal uh, because there has been seasonal signals that have, that have shown up with the flu and COVID is not the flu. And obviously thinking about how transmission may ebb and flow as we move out of the Northern Hemisphere winter obviously has pretty important implications because obviously the Southern Hemisphere moves into its winter. And so there might be some ability to think about what, what, what might happen. I think we should also really contextualize this by saying, as in many systems, these are systems and they're very, very complicated. And any one element of that system, be it climate, be it economic, be it social conditions, be it other environmental conditions, are confounded by a whole bunch of other variables. Uh, and I really think that's kind of the key challenge right now with thinking through whether or not there is a, is a climate uh, uh, signal. So there was a, a report that was just put out by the National Academies of Sciences because they were asked by the administration, well, what's the latest on the science? Because science is in hyperdrive right now. And I think one of the heartening things that I've seen from this pandemic is just how much uh, activity there's been behind the scenes on the science front on all fronts, like just really wanting to bring people's skills to bear on the problem. And so obviously climate scientists and weather and meteorologists are, are, are part of that. And so the Trump administration really asked 
what the National Academies, what the latest uh, was. And so they did this rapid report. There's not been a lot out, obviously, uh, because it's, it's new. You know, there's been some reports, but mostly in preprint form, which is more or less non-peer review papers, just to get the information out there as, as quick as possible. But it, it doesn't go through the traditional modes of, of vetting um, that have looked at some laboratory studies about COVID and humidity and temperature and some more natural experiments where you actually look at like the case rates across different countries and, and relate them to environmental conditions, climate conditions, and try to pull, pull statistics. Now, the main take uh, from this is it's very early. There, it's inconclusive evidence. There's some studies that suggest there is a relationship. There's other studies that suggest that there's not a relationship. And so I, I want to just pull out what I think is a worthwhile uh, quote from this report. And anybody can download this from National Academies. It's like the preeminent scientists get together and they, you know, review what's been put out there and are able to scientifically vet it. The title is Rapid Expert Consultation on SARS-CoV-2 Survival in Relation to Temperature and Humidity and the Potential for Seasonality for the COVID-19 pandemic, April 7th. Okay, so there is some evidence to suggest that SARS-CoV may transmit less efficiently environments with higher ambient temperatures and humidity. However, given the lack of host immunity globally, this reduction in transmission efficiency may not lead to a significant reduction in the spread without the concomitant adoption of major public health interventions. Furthermore, the other coronaviruses causing potentially serious human illness, including both SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, have not demonstrated any evidence of seasonality following their emergence. I guess the point here that I would make is that th there is by no means any conclusive results out yet on looking at the links between climate and, 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 and COVID. And I think we should all plan on doing all the other necessary steps to eliminate its transmission and not rely on temperature or humidity as we move into the summer. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I completely agree. And I, I think that us being the Southwest Climate Podcast and me leaning so heavily on climatology, uh, we know that it's going to get warmer. As it gets warmer, the humidity is not going to change a lot. We're going to bottom out in being in very dry and hot conditions by June, which is what we normally do. I think what you're saying is that the climate links with virus transmission are pretty small and poorly understood. So I don't expect that we will see a large climate effect on virus transmission as we go forward. So there's two types of ways of historically figuring out relationships between temperature and, and humidity and other of those types of variables and, and, and disease. And again, this is epidemiology. We're not epidemiologists, but the two types are, you know, either laboratory. Not stopping us. <laughs> <laughs> True. We are in that day and age, right? Where everybody's a pundit on everything. You know, you can do these laboratory controlled experiments where you actually have fairly good control over, uh, over environmental conditions. So that's one way. And the other way is through these like natural experiments. And again, this is straight from that National Academies report. And those national, uh, sorry, and those um, natural experiments are basically looking at real life data. And, and what's flawed about that approach is maybe not flawed, just challenging is that, you know, the data is tough to come by. It's often underreported some places and same with the, you know, the climate data. Uh, but the other thing is, is 
we, we, right now, I mean, people want things in real time and they want it really quickly. And, and for those natural experiments playing out right now, we've, we've only had four months into this. Yeah. It's a novel virus. We don't have enough data. And I think that the, that the actual case rate reporting is, is way underestimated. And I think that that's widely known too. And I think like you're saying, the the experimentation, there's only so many things that you can do as far as varying environmental controls on that. And they, they're going to be laboratory. And so how they actually work in the real world, we're living the experiment right now. And I don't think there's enough to go on to be able to say anything particularly meaningful as far as the climate connection right here. So two points I want to make on that. And one is I went back and I was, I was thinking about this and I was like, okay, I didn't even actually understand why there is a seasonal flu signal. So I did a little bit of reading and it turns out that there was a number of hypotheses, hypotheses about why, why there was a seasonal expression of flu that wasn't really definitively tested until 2007, believe it or not. And so that made me think, I mean, it, it took, it took what, a hundred years or 90 years, basically since the, the 1918, 1990 pandemic uh, flu for there to be definitive experimentation to, to, to find the, the transmission link between temperature and uh, humidity and, and seasonal flu. And like here we want it now. I mean, and again, 90 years of, of knowing about a particular uh, virus and, and trying to go through the, the, the science to figure it out. And here, again, we're four months into it, if, if that. So uh, and I, I guess I should say, just because I found it interesting, you know, people had hypothesized that, well, maybe there's more cases in, in the winter because, you know, people are indoors more. And so there's closer contact and more circulation. Or another hypothesis had to do with uh, just less sun and therefore, you know, people's bodies were producing less vitamin D or people, you know, had less uh, melatonin and therefore their immune systems were suppressed. And then of course, the, the third one was the link between that the actual virus survived better in, in cold and or drier conditions. And it, and it, it turned out that uh, this was, so some scientist in around, you know, around 2007, when he published the paper was like looking at old uh, 1918, 1919 uh, papers on the, on the Spanish flu and found that somebody had made a reference to uh, guinea pigs getting it. And part of the problem that, that they had prior to this in testing those hypotheses was they, they, they couldn't really test this on living things. Can't do it on people for obvious reasons. But it turned out guinea pigs became the guinea pig and they, could actually, they did catch the, the, the flu virus. And then this guy set up this, this nice experimental design and was able to measure uh, differences in, in transmission under different temperatures and humidity ranges and made a strong link between transmission rates and, 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 and environmental conditions. Anyway, I guess the point is we still got a long way to go. I don't know, Mike, you and I have been sort of going back and forth just related to the need for, for quick uh, science and, and how that can inform decisions and how that really puts strain on the traditional scientific vetting process of more protracted peer review, which quite frankly is, is, is perhaps in some respects not quick enough for the current situation. And so you, you get these preprint studies that perhaps could put out, and people, there's been retracted studies and there's been abuse of 
of, of studies related to, to this virus just by looking at uh, preprints that haven't gone through the scientific process. Yeah, I, science doesn't move quick by, by, uh, <clears throat> by design. You got no hot take on this one, do you? I think science has a, a really important role in all of these kinds of globally impactful type events, but it usually is somewhat secondary and at a slower pace. And it's often not like the disaster or pandemic movies where the hero is a scientist. I just think that that's, you know, more, I love love the the movies about like volcanoes are about to erupt and the hero (laughs) protagonist is always a volcanologist. I, I always wanted to be that. I was actually thinking about Pierce Brosnan in that uh, volcano movie. Um, where he was trying to tell everybody that the volcano was going to erupt and nobody would listen to him. I haven't seen that one. That's the Southwest Climate Podcast is we're trying to tell people to listen to us that it's going to be dry in June and hot and nobody <laughs> will listen to us. Well, that is the easiest prediction to make. If, 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 if uh, there's ever a, um, a prediction you want to bank on, it's that it's going to be warm and, hot, warm and dry in June in, in the Southwest. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I think that's a good transition. Uh, anything else that you want to say about, uh, uh, before we move on, anything that the climate... No, I, that- I think it's good. And I apologize to anybody who is looking for respite from a COVID discussion. Maybe we'll put in the, um, the introductory text to skip, <laughs> skip ahead if, you, if you're all COVIDed out. Honestly, Zach, I think it's going to be an interesting thing as we I give it a year from now, I think 18 months from now, that's when I think we can have a pretty inter- interesting discussion on this. When we've seen an annual cycle go by, we've seen the, the case reporting get better. <clears throat> we've seen people actually able to do some meaningful statistics. Then I'm going to be more interested in, in kind of diving into this. Yeah. And I'll be interested in see if there is a signal, like what the effect of that signal is amongst yeah. all, of, all of the other things. And I, I think what, what usually plays out is, you know, the, the response, like the human agency and the, and, and the actions that are taken will be much stronger. And this is kind of an obvious statement, but there'll be much, much stronger determinants of transmission than, you know, a few degrees or even like 10 degrees Celsius or sorry, Fahrenheit. So we, we also have to think not, not just if there is a signal, but what's, what's the relative strength of that as well? Yeah, I, there, it's a, just a little bit of, <clears throat> we're trying to find some hope right now. And <clears throat> the hope we have is that the sun angle is getting higher in the Northern Hemisphere. So that's, <laughs> that's what we're latching onto right now. And I don't think it's something that we should, we should um, hold real tightly to. Right. Yeah, we all want this to end quicker, quicker than not. But uh, okay, so let's move on. All right, so we're now mid-April, uh, effectively have the winter precipitation in the rearview mirror, with the exception of maybe a rogue uh, late April, early, early May storm. I think we can feel fairly confident that what's come before is what, is, is what we have. And Mike, in terms of precipitation, it was pretty darn good. Yeah, it's been quite good. <laughs> that's, um, that's too sp- Two Aprils in a row, I think we can say that. Right. So, uh, okay. So if we look at just around the Southwest, Phoenix, and, and these, this is data that you've plotted up, Mike, and it looks at the entire uh, winter plus a little bit of, if, if you don't want to call October uh, the winter, it has October in it. But in the Southwest, it didn't rain year, in October. It didn't rain in, nice. in October. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the October through end of May, uh, and we're not there, obviously, 
precipitation so far has been in, in Phoenix, we're at like 5.8 inches, which is, you know, four and a quarter, four, four and a half uh, is, 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 the, is the average. So we're above average, uh, even if we stop right now and we still have a little bit of time to go. Tucson, above average as well, uh, 5.6 inches and around five is, is the long-term average. So good there. Uh, Flagstaff, above average. 15.2 inches where uh, a little over 14 is, is, is the average. So, so again, um, above average in Albuquerque, above average and uh, El Paso, above average. So pretty comprehensively uh, a, good, a good winner. So Mike, why don't you take us through maybe what's just happened uh, in the last uh, month or so? How did we get here? I think that we... Last talked, probably March 9th or 10th, right at that point, we had had fairly decent activity February into early March, and we were just on the cusp of it, the weather uh, turning unsettled again. And so it had been quite an, quite an interesting evolution of um, the weather pattern through March, and it was not all that unlike what we saw in February, and it kind of continued into the rest of the month, even into an event that we had across the Southwest last week. And one of the, the, some of the predominant patterns in the Northern hemisphere, this entire winter have been a a strong positive Arctic oscillation, which has, you know, kept all of that cold Arctic air bottled up around the pole. So we haven't seen a lot of cold air outbreaks in the Eastern part of the U S and what we've seen in the the Eastern Pacific Ocean is a pretty strong ridge of high pressure. And that has led to this um, strong ridge of high pressure leading to, it's um, pretty consistently um, negative values of the Pacific North American pattern, which is a, a, it's a pattern of highs and lows in the Eastern Pacific through the continental U.S. that the uh, Northern Hemisphere can kind of get locked into. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a common weather pattern, which is why we've given it a name and we've actually calculated an index out of it. <clears throat> and so the, the positive uh, phase of that Pacific North American pattern, which would be a, a strong trough of low pressure over the um, Bering Straits, which would lead to a ridge downstream over North America, and then <clears throat> sometimes a trough developing or a subtropical jet developing over the Southeast. We've actually had the exact opposite pattern, which is that strong ridge of high pressure over the East Pacific. And then kind of a a persistent trough either over the Western US or just off the West Coast. And having that persistent pattern has led to this this weak instability that has slung or even spawned these little mid-level low pressure systems. And so that has led to some pretty slow moving low pressure systems off the Southern California coast that have led to some pretty heavy rain events, have funneled up some subtropical moisture into the Southwest, Southern California in particular, this uh, last event that was in early April. But in mid-March, we Mm. ended up having a couple of those events just slowly move across the Southwest. And they were warm events and brought quite a bit of precipitation to much of the state. I was pulling up some of the data. The Southwest part of the state pretty interestingly, has had just enormous amounts of rain for March. I, I pulled up Yuma, the Yuma Proving Ground had 2.75 inches of precipitation in March, which I believe is their 
record, at least back to the early 60s, the previous wettest March on record for that station was 1992, which is an epically wet year for, for the Southwest. So pretty interesting to have the low deserts get that wet in March. Yeah, and that March event really gave Phoenix quite a bit of, of rain. It was something like there was measurable rain at, that air, at the Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport for four consecutive days. Yeah, it, it didn't lead to much for, for Tucson. I mean, Tucson did. They did well in that particular event, but I think we only got like half an inch out of that event. Yeah, it was not as much as, it seemed like it was more of a, of a Northwestern signal for that particular event, but nonetheless. Yeah, right, I, I mean, think that, that funneling into that precipitation gave it a pretty hard edge to the Southeast. And you're right, the central lower desert part of the state did pretty well with that event. But, and, and then looking at Tucson, I mean, consistently, uh, since it started, since the winter more or less started in mid-November, I, I mean, there's been a, a constant drizzle of, uh, of, of rain. I mean, not a ton of large events, but that's not un, uncharacteristic. It's just been, you know, it, it seems like if you're reading between uh, the lines on this bar graph here, it's, you can almost just see a number of these low pressure systems wafting down from, from the North and, and, and providing, you know, some nice moisture, uh, you know, every week or so for the most part. I mean, we didn't, we didn't have it from mid-March, uh, previous to mid-March. I mean, there weren't many long breaks in, um, precip free, uh, periods. Yeah. It's interesting. So I was, I was looking at the, the cumulative precip for Tucson and then you can look at Albuquerque too, which is, pretty interesting because it's it's not necessarily close to us and it's you know due northeast of here but if you look at november to present this i'm just saying what you're what you're saying here too is that the accumulation of precip and the spacing of the events is as quote unquote normal as you could get it's just like the pace Mm -hmm. of the precipitation puts you as close to the average accumulation line as you could probably get in any year and so Tucson, you know, rounding out the October through May period is what, 5.63 inches. And that's just a touch above what you'd expect over that period Mm -hmm. anyway. And the number of events has been 29. And I think you expect to see like 26 Mm -hmm. events. And the average intensity has been right around uh, two tenths of an inch. So it's it's like as mundane as possible. And if, if you look at the temperature patterns too, we just didn't have any long stretches of either exceptionally cold or warm weather with that pacing of the precip too. It just kind of kept everything in check. And so it's, it's as boringly close to climatology as you could get. Yeah, but we'll take it. Oh gosh, I'd take this. I take this every year. It'd make I mean, our if, job so much easier. If you zoom out and look at the, and look at the West or even look at the continental U S and, and look at the accumulated precipitation over the winter, uh, the Southwest fared, fared, as good or better than most of the country. And in, in comparison to the West, I mean, you go north of San Francisco all the way, uh, you know, north along the coast, and it's, it's, it's the opposite uh, situation there. It's, it's the, the hinge line basically has been at San Francisco. Northward, it's been dry. And, and to the south of that, it's been, it's been wet. So, you know, we really yeah. fared quite well from um, a, a pattern that brought us uh, more more events than than the Pacific Northwest. So I'm wondering that. Do you know? I mean, was the synoptic pattern it, it, it just so that the ridge 
was 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 pushing the storms slightly to the off the west coast and then they were slipping in underneath sort of northern california into our area i mean what yep. what would have caused that pattern no it's exactly it it's it's <clears throat> if you just look at the, the the kind of the sequence of all of the, the precipitation I'm sorry i keep losing the the page that i'm looking at right here is yeah that that um that ridge of high pressure in the east pacific is unfavorable for the storm track for the Pacific Northwest and is more favorable for us. I mean, they, they ended up, I mean, it kind of wobbled around again. It wasn't, this wasn't a super strong, I don't think blocky type pattern. Um, it still wandered around again a bit, but if you look at the, the anomaly plot, just the average of all the weather maps for like the last 30 or 90 days, it's definitely that the predominant pattern was that ridge in the East Pacific and a weakness of across the southwest so it, it really did favor us and again those the trajectory of some of the storms the speed of some of the storms and their ability to tap into subtropical moisture was really important for a lot of the events we saw in february and march especially those heavy rainers we saw in march and by speed you mean it's it, it wasn't they weren't moving fast they were not moving fast no if you look at the maps they're not quite cutoff flows some of them are but they don't, they don't, they're not wandering around for days and days. They're actually just slow moving, closed, low pressure systems that were forming off of a wave pattern that was moving across the Western US. So can we like chase our tail here and, 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 and ask the question and, and answer it if there's anything that was causing the slow moving? I mean, what would... There's probably an answer. One aspect of it too is that the, the predominant polar jet was actually quite a bit further north because of that, or, or, or at least associated with the, that positive Arctic oscillation. And so these, these wave patterns were sort of, they looked like they were, they were breaking mm. over the west and leaving some of these little low pressure systems behind, and then they were getting absorbed again into the mean flow. I'm just looking at the maps from like early March through present. Mm -hmm. And so they're not it's not like a, a real deep trough of the polar jet dropping far south in the western U.S. It's more of a wave breaking over the west and then leaving a low pressure behind and then that low pressure getting picked back up again. Right. And so those, those low pressures are sort of outside of the, 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 the main jet stream. And yeah, so exactly. Right. <clears throat> right. It's not a, a deep car. Like these are not, and I, that's also what we saw too, is they're, they're not super cold storms. They're not, it's not got this channel of high latitude, cold air diving south. It's more their little kind of weak, mid-level low pressure systems that were kind of shortwave troughs moving across the west. That's a whole lot of jargony. And uh, made perfect that, sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> seat of the pants. No, um, looking at these weather maps in real time. I mean, there's a. I'm sure there's a good quantification for it. You know, again, I, I just went back to the, the the indices to see what you know if there's anything that's sort of really standing out as being, you know, predominantly driving it. The Pacific North America pattern, I think, captures some of this. And the El Nino, um, we've been weekly warm, but I don't think that that's been a strong driver. Um, yeah, it's kind of been teasing borderline weak El Nino, but I mean, 
Yeah. What's yeah, and I don't I don't sort of an arbitrary at this point. It's a it, even if it were to cross like the 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 numeric threshold and become officially ranked a uh, in El Nino, which I I I still think that's in play. I mean, it depends on the the sea surface temperatures of the next few months, but it's yeah fairly arbitrary. What's the difference between you know? the average sea surface temperatures being, you know, 0.45 and, and, and being classified as a neutral and being, you know, 0.51 and being classified as a weak El Nino. So maybe it's... Yeah, right. I, you know, it's this whole thing. Is it, is it helping or hurting? I, I don't know. I don't, probably, probably not. Yeah. It, just so makes hard, it makes it hard to attribute. Yeah. The attribution is like, yeah, this is pretty challenging stuff. And I think you, both you and I try to scour... The discussions and the ones that I've looked at aren't, I mean, nobody's, there's no real strong single cause. I mean, this is, seems to be weather variability, you know, at play. It is interesting though. I mean, the Western pattern looks very El Nino-like. It does. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly got that hint of it. And I think that that is, I think you could connect that back to some of the things that you see with a Pacific North America pattern. Like that, that looks pretty similar to what you'd see with that kind of predominant weather pattern, except for there's kind of the, the Texas, the, you'd be a little bit wetter in, in California. Cal, I'm sorry, not California, Florida. I went all the way to these. It's interesting for March, Florida had its record driest, largely had its record driest March. And so the wet was from Southern California through Southern New Mexico and through Texas and then kind of went up through the upper Midwest. And so not, you know, it's not a, there's no good perfect, I think, attribution here of any single, single source too. And I think that, you know, our kind of mundaneness, it doesn't totally communicate the broader story. Cause I think that you and I have probably seen some of the reporting coming out, but February um, marked the end of the second warmest winter on record. March, 2020 was the second warmest March on record too. This is globally. So, you know, what's happened here locally is pretty different from the global pattern. Yeah, about those, those rankings, I pulled up this, this, um, this percentile figure for the last, since, since January 1. So January 1 through April 1. And you alluded to this when you talked about uh, Yuma getting record precipitation. But in the Southwest, Yuma, I think, ha- is in the 99th percentile. Phoenix is in the 84th percentile, Prescott the 75th percentile. There's a few stations up in the um, sort of four corners area. What is this one? Winslow is in the 90th percentile, Deming 87th percentile. So really wet conditions um, in this three month period. And then as you move away from the Southwest, wow, it looks like San Francisco was the third driest on record. Um, many uh, of the stations in that sort of area are in the in the in the driest twenty percentile, and and so yeah, so um, we fared uh, in 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 our area. We fared uh, uh, quite well. Yeah, you know, for we really we had nothing to go on right coming into this winter with no strong El Nino, La Nina signals. So it's nice when they kind of shake out on the positive side like this. So, um, you know, we talked a lot last um, podcast about snowpack. So um, let's revisit it uh, here. Um, it's, one should say at this time 
of year, you can actually get quite a bit of variability um, among stations. If you look at stations uh, that are close to each other, just by virtue of it, it warming up and the elevation at which those stations are. And so obviously the, uh, the stations that are at sort of moderate elevations are, are going to experience much more rapid and sooner uh, melting than, than others. So when you look at, you know, station data at, at this particular time, there's quite a bit of, 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 of variability. But nonetheless, the pattern is still one where the Sierras, for the most part, are, if it wasn't for a late, when, when was that storm in early, early April, right, where really sort of saved part of the northern Sierras? Do you, do you recall that, Mike? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Are you, I'm, I'm just agreeing with you. Did you want more quantification than that? No, agreeing is fine. I, I think that works better for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, was, it, was on, um, it was on April 5th, 6th, and 7th. And even, even into the 8th was, again, it was one of those, what we were just talking about earlier, was one of these slow-moving closed lows. Came right in over Northern California and settled in over the state and brought up quite a bit of precip to the Sierra. Yeah, so it's a mixed bag on, on, across the West on, on what the uh, snowpack conditions are, but they largely reflect, reflected for the most part, you know, the, where there were in the, in the central Rockies where there were more precipitation events than there were in the Pacific Northwest, for example. And, and the Sierras were the big loser, which we talked about for the most part last, last podcast. Do you have any other insights about uh, snowpack? Yeah, so I just pulled up the snow water equivalent estimates for the upper Colorado River Basin through the Snowview tool here that some colleagues um, put together here at U of A. And really, really interesting to look at the, you can pull up a plot of the cumulative precipitation for the basin, and then you can look at the, the estimate of the snow water equivalent for every day of the year. And just as we were talking about earlier, what happened in 20. 2019-2020, it almost perfectly hugs the median curve for snow water equivalent. And so it just, it was a little bit above in February and then has fallen to almost on top of the median. And so as we get to sort of April, we get right to now. So this is of April 14th, the average snow water equivalent for the upper Colorado River Basin is right on top of the median. So pretty, you know, pretty close to climatology. Yeah, but we should also say that the projections for stream flow, which usually often uh, mirror to a large extent the snowpack, are actually calling for slightly below average conditions. Uh, yeah, so we, we talked a little bit about that last time. So what do you, what do you think is, is causing, causing that kind of divergence between the two things largely has to do with when the precipitation occurred and uh the warming conditions i think it had to do with the early the early dryishness to the fall dryishness for parts of the basin that the melt was going to go into um charging up soil water before it turned into to run off so i think uh, that, that that's part of what the models are probably still picking up that's on. right that like, didn't go away Right. Uh, relatively dry soil moisture early on, more evaporation with the warmer, warmer temperatures. I mean, it's not, a, it's not the, the numbers aren't much below average. Uh, for the upper Colorado River, 
sort of the the, the mean guess or the the the, the best estimate is that 86% of average stream flow for, for, for this year. It's kind of the best you could ask for, right? Is that if you're going to get something that close to climatology with some of those other competing effects early on in the season, to, to counteract those, we would have needed to gone way above climatology to get above average or above median runoff, right? Yeah, and, and you know, when you come down more toward you know, the Salt River Basin and the Verde River, the projections actually go up. Uh, and so, yeah, the Colorado River may be below average, but the the reservoirs in the Salt River are, are, are near full. Salt River, the Roosevelt uh, Reservoir is 97% full. The Verde Reservoirs are about 100% full. So that's a pretty good sign. The best guess is not above average, but they're, they're, they're near average, uh, 96% for the uh, Salt Salt River near Roosevelt for the January May period. So that's we won't complain about that, I guess. Verde River, on the other hand, uh, is above average. Uh, Horseshoe Dam, best guess is uh, around 118 percent for the January May period. So again, this this is what we would expect given the precipitation that that we experienced. And yeah, we had some warmer than average temperatures and some dry dry soil 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 moisture, but uh, the good rainfall, the constant rainfall, certainly. Um, makes the the water situation um, a pretty good picture. Did you happen to look at anything for um, the upcoming fire season? So my my expectation is we've got eight weeks till monsoon start. Happy eight-week countdown. So June 15th is eight weeks away. And the significant wildland fire potential outlook has been issued, and it was issued on April 1st by the National Interagency Fire Center predictive services actually has Southeast Arizona and the central part of Arizona is uh, above normal wildfire potential. And so my guess is, is that the epic wildflower season is going to turn into a nice crop of uh, fine fuels for the next month or two. I'm not looking at that map, but is that also at higher elevations? Like, are they, are they ca- calling for above average fire conditions at, at, in the higher elevation zones as well? No, they aren't. So they I, aren't, yeah. I didn't pull up the discussion here, but it, 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 this kind of looks like, and it goes away by July. So I think the expectation is, is that monsoon shows up on time. Again, you d- I did not make that forecast. That was not my <laughs> forecast right here. I'm just looking at trying to interpret that would be the best best estimate, though. No, but that would make sense because you know wet winters, you know, would produce more fine fuels, and it doesn't take long to dry out these fine fuels. I mean, and and we're headed right into the, you know, the meat of the our, our hot season, and you know, just give it a couple of days, and and what those grasses and and shrubs, you know, become you know fine fuels to to, to burn quite easily. So, how do you have a season? where it's not above higher risk for, for fire in this particular period at lower elevations. I mean, I would just think that it's always going to be high risk. No, it, it's, it's actually interesting. If you look at the, the, the research on this, and I feel like I can actually talk about this because I did it, some of my dissertation, but the, the fine fuels actually do come and go in the low deserts. They don't, they don't have a, again, it'll, it'll vary between perennials, grasses, and, and annuals in the low desert, but they don't tend to hang around 
for many, many years, right? So they can be tied pretty tightly to having a, a wet winter in the low deserts causing a crop and then having that standing crop of fine fuels be available, but they can break down once they cure out, they'll break down pretty quickly. And then that risk will go down. So if it ends up being a very dry winter, you don't end up having a lot of annuals right. and then that will, the, the risk, the risk is low. So this past, so we had what we had super bloom conditions a year ago, cause we ended up having the really wet October um, with the tropical storms. Mm-hmm. That, that early part of that f- late fall, early winter tends to produce a lot of annuals. And so we ended up having that in 2018, 2019. And then the timing of the rain in November was really good for pushing another crop of it. So I think that that's, that's some of the, the concern here too. So Southeast Arizona though is a little bit more warm season perennial grass and they did not have as good of a summer last year the, with the monsoon. So that might not be as, as high as a risk as it would be the lower desert areas, I would think. It does matter when the, the winter rains come. So yep. you could have a, an okay winter, let's say a 75% of average when you look at it over you know, the four or five month period. But if, it, if those rains come in November or December, that is still a, uh, creates good conditions for fine fuels. How does that work? I mean, we tend to think of these in gross terms, like above average winter, but you know, what's the, what, what's the timing? What's the, so the, the correlation between the fine fuels and annuals, it really peaks with the timing of the rain in November, December, and January. So if you got the same amount of precip, if you looked at the October through March total precip in Western Arizona, you can have years where in that total, the total was the same, but the outcome on the ground was really different just based on the timing of the precip in, in those seasons. And if it shifted more earlier and it's sustained early on, then you have got a longer, cause you're, you're end up, you're, it's like planting a garden, right? It's, there's a growing season. And when you water the plants by the end of that season is going to be how big they're going to get. Right. So if you ended up in October through March period and it all came in February and March, you're going to get a pretty different outcome than you would have gotten if you would have done it in November, December, and then maybe again in January and February. And that's kind of the, the, the worst outcome for fine fuels. Like if it comes late, like you want it to come early and often. Well, what's worse coming early and then shutting down or coming late and then, and not coming early. Um, well, I think you can grow again. And this is where all the, the different, the different ecosystems are kind of tuned up to the different timing of precip in the low desert. That is, again, you're kind of leaning towards the Mojave here where they're, they're tuned up towards winter precipitation. If it comes early in the fall, then you can get stuff to, to sprout. If it gets hot and dry, you can truncate that growing season by the time it gets to be January, February. But if you can do something like we did this year, which is start early and go off and you're going to get the best outcome for fine fuels the low desert. And again, this, um, we're just talking, we're talking about wildflowers here too, right? So, so your best outcome for, for wildflowers is going to be native wildflowers down here is going to be early and often with the precip rather than a lot late. Yeah. And it's been a pretty good, pretty good wildflower season. I don't know if you've been out, but. Uh, I, oh yeah. We, we, we got lucky and we've got this penstemon crop in our backyard that continues to 
reseed. And it, this year was epic because of, I think, the timing of the precip and the background temps. Yeah, so, okay, so if that, I hadn't looked at the fire. That's, that's something to keep an eye on going forward. And, and you know, we, we've now got, like you said, eight, eight weeks prior to the monsoon starting. So we are heading into the, the heart of the fire season. So we'll, we'll do a little bit more on this in a month, see how things have evolved. Anything else about, Mike, um, about the upcoming sort of hot and dry season? Uh, you know, it's, in, in my mind, it's, it's kind of the most uneventful time. It's also the most uh, depressing time, which will also be worse this time around because we're winter houses. <laughs> That's right. This is just me being wish casting at this point. It's not crazy to think that we might end up having maybe one more precip event. I think what's more likely is we'll end up having some windy days as we transition here. I'm just looking at the, the two-week forecast, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily lean in any direction. There's not a lot of indication. And in the, in the week three, four forecast, too, is, is equal chances as well. So there's no strong signal in either way. But you're right. We're running out of time. Um, if you I'm, the average, I think there's, like, on average, like, less than a quarter of an inch that falls from now until the end of May. Oh yeah, for sure. We had, we, we did again, wish casting. Um, uh, we had a half an inch in, remember how cool oh, that rogue storm. I love yeah, that. Totally weird. Yeah. No way we should ever count on that. What I want you to do now for, for the next podcast is, is, is come with your best prediction. I want yeah, to thought I, through I mean, monsoon prediction based on, uh, mechanisms. Give me, give me some reasons for, you know, the, the monsoon to start earlier or, or, or late. And if you say it starts on time, then it'll be a short conversation. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm excited. Like, like, I feel like, you know, if we're, if we're, we're quarantined now and we're, we're, we're kind of looking for something, there's no sports on, there's nothing. It's like the, the monsoon season will have to be our sport. Oh, we have to turn that into a sport. That's a great call. Yeah. And so I, I really think we should be serious about the, um, the fantasy uh, forecasting this upcoming season and see if we can try to open this up a little bit more and um, kind of be more frequent about our sort of discussions and, and engaging folks on this. Yeah. We gave that a trial. We got last, going for us. Yeah. Yeah. We gave that a trial last time. We did. We, we, we can do it better though. We'll, we'll, we'll make I that promise. We might have more time on our hands this year. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I think that leads into um, just thinking a little bit about um, the future, maybe um, not just the monsoon, but, but also a little bit longer term with the, the El Nino, La Nina conditions that are on the horizon um, since we always do this. And I think maybe, Mike, the only real interesting tidbit uh, to say about El Nino and, and La Nina is that there is some hint that the, the models are, are, are tilting toward uh, a La Nina. And of course, this is the, the time in which it's the hardest to make predictions. So I pulled up some statistics about, at this moment, how much correlation there is with uh, current data and wintertime projections for ENSO. Okay, so let me see. I'm going to test your knowledge here. In April, what do you think the, the R squared is, the correlation, the, the amount of variability explained by April data for the November, December, January ENSO forecast? 0.15. 0.15. Okay, so 
it changes depending on if you're, if you're looking at statistical or dynamical models. So mm. dynamical models, what, what, 0.15 is your answer or, or does it change? Uh, it's probably 0.2 for dynamical and 0.15 for statistical. It's pretty close. It's actually a little bit higher for dynamical. Oh, is it really? Like yeah, a little under 0.4. Oh, wow. Statisticals are, statistical models are like less than 0.1. So basically, I mean, you can't hang your hat on anything there. Uh, yeah. And even 0.4 is, is, is pr pretty darn low. Right. People often call this the spring predictability barrier. And, and, and those, uh, those numbers increase through time, uh, through these months. And so let me, let me test your knowledge. In October, if you were to make the forecast with October data for the November, December, January for period, what do you think the percent variance explained is? For statistical for dy or dynamical? For, for either. For, let's, let's start with dynamical. 0.7? actually pretty it's higher than that it's like really? point, it's like I'm, I'm eyeballing it here it's above the it's probably 0 0.9 0 0.9 ish well and okay fair okay i gotta that was dumb of me to say 0.7 that's almost a now cast at that point it's the next it's an yeah it's the next month it's the it's next, almost a now cast for a slowly evolving phenomenon <laughs> oh so, so you think it should be better it should be better <laughs> that just means the monitoring isn't very good yeah, but if you if you go to uh, if you go to September for the November December January three month season, it's still uh, above 0.8. Again, it's a slowly evolving phenomenon that has a seasonality to it. So if you're almost into the season, you know the the money shot is July, right? Is like when you're not quite sure how it's going to shake out, and you still have got some lead time to make mm -hmm. some decisions. So like that's interesting. Sense. So July then is about 0.7. Okay. That, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I would have, would have expected. And that's not, that's not terrible. And what else is interesting, I think, is that there's virtually no difference uh, between just looking at statistical models and looking at more sort of computational um, uh, numerical dynamical models. All right. I, um, I just, well, I just, I wanted to just kind of bookend the conversation. I wanted to see with my own eyes what the model prediction plume looked like for, for ENSO going forward. And I, I have the, is the, was the April one out? Um, the ENSO quick look. It looks pretty neutral-ish to my eyeball regression. I don't know about you. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, so both a neutral and a La Nina has slightly higher odds than their sort of climatological probabilities where the El Nino is, uh, is a reduction, obviously. So the neutral and El Nino split the, the percentages from El Nino. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, like we just said, it's sort of a flip of the coin at, the, at this moment. I see now what's going on. <laughs> ben slacked us the NMME National Multimodel Ensemble, uh, all the ensemble output here in the climate forecast system, the, the NOAA CFS model just craters over the next mm. six months or so. Right. And what I was just saying, though, is, is sort of looking at the ensemble, looking at all of them together and trying to come up with uh, probabilities based on all of the different models. But any one individual model may have a, a, a different outlook. And the CFS is the sort of NOAA preferred version. 
know a preferred model. But yeah, that is... I've been but, hurt by the CFS2 before though. No, but this goes back to what we were just talking about. At this, at this moment, it's give it a few months before these things can, can flip quite, quite vigorously at this moment. Yeah. This is a novelty conversation to have. It's not a particularly useful one um, at this point. That's right. I mean, it's, it's just a tease. Like, stay tuned. We'll talk more about Enso as, as, as we have something more definitive to say. <laughs> I guess the, the, the most useful thing we could probably say is that we've struggled with trying to understand the effect of Enso on the monsoon season. So I, I think maybe the upside is, is that there doesn't seem to be a strong, there's not a strong event underway that would mess with the monsoon season if there is indeed a messing of boldness with the monsoon season with Enso. Yeah, and that, that is actually a good point because it wasn't so many years ago during, uh, I believe it was the first dip of the super, the back-to-back like really strong El Ninos where that El Nino did evolve early in the summer. Even last spring, we had weak El Nino conditions that collapsed in the spring. And there was some concern that that was some lingering impact that ruined our our monsoon start and really suppressed monsoon activities. So maybe we can have that that noise off the table for going into this season. Well, great. We look forward to having you like talk us through why you think uh, the monsoon is going to be better or worse than, than, than average next, next time, Mike. But you know that I'm always going to be optimistic about it. So it won't really be a reasonable, rational conversation. It'll just, I want a psychological explanation. I can't do, I will need, I will need some meteorological therapy prior to that. (laughs) So I can can be an even unbiased uh, discusser of the month's upcoming monsoon, but I'm too enthusiastic about it. Okay, Mike, fi- final parting shot. Like, what's your take home from the winter? Any, any, any lasting thoughts on this winter? Boring, we- just like I like it. Boring, really? Well, climatological, just like I like it. No, it wasn't. I mean, it was, it was uh, man, just every three to four days or every week or two, you get a precip event, kept the temps down, it grew all sorts of great flowers in our yard. Hey, I'm, I'm very, very pleased. See, that's what stuck out to me. It was the frequency of it. And I don't know if that was all that unusual or not, but... Um, it's been it was... very, very unusual if you look in the last like five to seven years with some of the just crazy hot and dry... Wings. Their falls or springs or both that we've had to kind of weather. And this year just didn't have it. It's good that we came out of this uh, with a little bit of optimism, I think. So, Mike... As always, it was a it was a pleasure seeing you over uh, this time over Zoom. Um, you too, you too, Zach, and keep that you beard shave, going. We'll are you going to shave? Are you going to shave your beard? Nope, I'm going. I'm going. This is going to be a full quarantine beard. I've I've already committed to it. I can't. As soon as the everything's lifted, I probably will. Yeah, I mean, I, you're going full ZZ top here. Oh no, it's 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 growing out in in every direction. It's it's going to be. <laughs> if it grays out, I can play Santa. Uh, Christmas. <laughs> I, I will have that that gig going for me. Yeah, but, it's, uh, it's 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 pretty silver. <laughs> it's on its way for sure. Thanks for right. leading the charge today, Zach, over Zoom. We appreciate it. And Ben, thanks for the editing of this crazy file that you'll have to do. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening and uh, stay well. And uh, you know, hopefully, we'll have some better better news come come a month we'll see things are changing quite rapidly yeah stay well everybody 
the lower, no, it's not the lower. My geography is not great. The upper Colorado river basin. Geography? Isn't that where you got your degree? <laughs> yes, it is. Should actually have that. Should have that nailed. The uh, the where. So I'm looking at the 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 snowpack 